Welcome. Um, as you think about death, it's probably one of the more uncomfortable topics we talk about, isn't it? Right? There's something just in us that we, we like to avoid the subject. You don't bring it up in polite conversation. Like if we can avoid thinking about it, we avoid thinking about it. We spend billions of dollars a year fighting against it coming for us. And that's probably pretty right. You know, that um, in First Corinthians, it talks about like the very last enemy that will die when the age closes is death itself. And it is an enemy. It is not God's design or intention that people die. Death was not part of the human experience until the fall introduced it. And so as much as we try to fight it, as much as it seems mysterious, as much as it seems unnerving and challenging, some things that we can say for sure is that we have a Savior that stands in the face of death and death goes quiet at his voice. And when he speaks to death, life happens instead. That happens physically today. In this text, but it also happens spiritually this very day all over the world. He speaks to dead men and dead men and women and boys and girls hear his voice and they're made alive. And that, I think, is what this text is is shouting to us today. And so as we work our way to John chapter 11, the, the closing part here, the second half here, We've been talking throughout the book of John with this one main overarching theme. Jesus is the promised Christ and the son of God who offers eternal life to all who believe in him. That's out of John 20, 31. Jesus is the promised Christ and the son of God who offers eternal life to all who believe in him. Believe in Christ. Experience eternal life. That is eternal life today where you live in this huge widened realm where God is real and there's this whole spiritual world that is bigger than just the physical and material world you live in. And there's this bigger life than just this little physical life that people live. That's what this book is, is John's pleading with you to see Jesus, pleading with you to, to believe that he is the Christ, pleading with you to believe that there's eternal life through faith in his name. And that's why this book is here. He is pleading with you to hear his voice as a dead person and to let his voice make you alive. And that's my plea for you today as well. We're now transitioning into the last major section of the book. Um, so we've gone through his public ministry where signs led to faith. We've gone through his public ministry where signs led to increasing hostility, increasing persecution, increasing opposition. And now chapters 11 and 12 are going to transition us from a public ministry to a private ministry. And that private ministry will ultimately lead to his suffering, to his death and to his resurrection. And so these two chapters bridge us over, walk us over from this public ministry into this private ministry, ultimately culminating in his, his suffering, his death and his resurrection. And so last week we we looked at the first part of this story uh, where Jesus hears the news of his friend. He loves this guy. He loves Lazarus. He loves this family. He loves Mary and Martha. And he hears that that Lazarus has gotten sick and pretty severely sick, obviously, from the reports. And he tells us, don't worry right? that this doesn't lead to death, but it is for the glory of God, that the son of God may be glorified. And so what we see is that whatever is about to happen is about to happen to put Jesus on display for people. 
whatever is going to happen throughout the rest of chapter 11 from that early verse, whatever is going to happen is going to be look at Jesus and see how great he is. Look at God and see how glorious he is. Look at God and see how perfect he is. Something is going to put God on display. Now, we know the rest of the story. A lot of us. And so we know what that's going to be. But the point of what this story is, is not that we get really excited about the sign. The sign's wonderful. The point of this story is that we get really excited about Jesus. And that we see something about him that's greater and more perfect and more worthy and more beautiful than what we've seen up to this point. That's the point of of what's going on in chapter 11. And so this illness is for the glory of God. Whatever is going to happen here is for the glory of God. And then whatever is going to happen happens as an expression of Jesus's love for this family and Jesus's love for his disciples. It says he loved them. And so he waited earlier in the text. He waited until after Lazarus had died. The glory of God, the love of Jesus sometimes results in suffering, sometimes results in letting suffering continue. But the last piece that we talked about last week was this. They don't know the end of the story yet because Jesus hasn't come on the scene yet. So for the glory of God, as an expression of the love of Jesus, suffering happens. But there's an end of the story that makes everything make sense. That frames out the story of your life, that frames out the story of Lazarus's life, that frames out the story of Mary and Martha's life. There's an end of the story. And it's not until we get the end of the story that things make sense. It's not until we get the end of the story that the framework of life we're walking through We're enabled to walk through it and experience the stuff that the fall has brought to our doorstep. So that we're transitioning or at the end of that, uh, that last segment that leads into this one, we get the fifth I am statement of Jesus. And so he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha's like, I know at the end of the age, my brother will rise again. I know there's a heaven, basically. That's comforting. And Jesus is like, I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. I'm the future hope. That final resurrection is me. And if you know me, you experience resurrection. If you know me, you live in resurrection. If you know me, life happens. If you know me, the present reality of abundant life happens. And Martha, do you believe it? And Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. Sound familiar from John 20, 31? You are the Christ. You are the son of God who is coming into the world. Martha leaves the last encounter with the eternal life that John has been promising to those who believe. Which leads us to the text today. And so in 28 through 57, it talks about when Martha said this or when she 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 went back home to Mary and she told Mary privately, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And so Mary gets up and she she runs quickly out to see Jesus. And Jesus was still outside of the village where he had met with Martha And all the Jews that were with her, mourning with her, all the Jews that saw her leave quietly or or saw her leave quickly. And so they, too, got up and followed after her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep. And when Mary came to Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and he saw the crowds with her weeping. He was deeply troubled in his spirit or he was uh, deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then he said to him, where have you laid him? And then they said, come and see, Lord. And Jesus wept. Jesus wept. 
And those who were around said, oh, see how much he loved him. But others said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? And Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb. And we came to the tomb, it was a cave with a stone rolled against it. And he told them, take the stone away. But Martha says, Lord, by now there will be this odor for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And then Jesus lifted up his, or they took the stone away. And then Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always heard me, but I said this for those who are standing around that they might believe that you sent me. And then he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out and he was bound in his hands and his feet with linen linen strips and his face was covered with a cloth. And then he said to them who were around, unbind him and let him go. Then many of the Jews, therefore, that were with him, that had been with Mary and that had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and they said, what are we going to do? He's performed. This man performs many signs. And if he goes, if we let him continue like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and they'll take away our place. And our nation and Caiaphas stood up and said, you know, nothing. Is it not better for one man to die for the nation than the whole nation perish? Now, Caiaphas didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation alone, but to gather into one the children of God who have been scattered abroad. And so from that time forward, they had a plan to Put Jesus to death. And so Jesus no longer walked openly among them. And I would just point out the last section of text. The Passover of Jesus was at hand and many went up to purify themselves. And then they had this big clamor. What do you think? That he'll not come to the feast at all. Let's pray. So, Father. We bow our hearts before the one who speaks to death. And death retreats and life comes back. We speak to the one that is calling to the hearts of dead men to come alive. We we pray to the one who has power over death. And we pray that you would bring life. I pray for those who are uh, who are yours, who belong to you, who've heard your voice, who follow you, God. I pray for those who are discouraged and God, for those whose life is fading, they're disheartened and discouraged and weak. God, I pray that they would hear the voice of the Son of God and life and joy and hope would uh, fill up their souls again. God, I pray for the ones who think this world offers something better. And we're living for something this world offers. God, and we're chasing after just some American dream or they're chasing after wealth or, or status. God, I pray that they would hear the voice of your son and they'd, they'd hear him say that life only comes in the name of Jesus. And Father, that they would awaken to that. And Father, they would run from sin and they'd run from lust and they'd run from vain pursuits and they'd run to Jesus because they hear his voice. 
And I pray for those, Father, that are here today that don't know Jesus. And it will never be how good my words are. It will never be how eloquent I could be. It will never be anything I can do, God. But I pray they would hear the voice of Jesus. And I pray they would come alive today. I pray they'd come alive today through faith in your name. God, would you do more than our feeble human words and efforts could ever do? Would you do that, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we walk back through the story, Martha has just finished up her encounter with Jesus. And it's very intentional what John does. John puts the encounter with Martha side by side with the encounter with Mary. And he's intentionally contrasting the two encounters. And so uh, with Martha's encounter, it is marked by it's an individual experience between Jesus and Martha or maybe the disciples around. But, but it's a one on one with Jesus and Martha. The encounter with Martha is filled with words. Right. It's an interaction. It's a dialogue back and forth between Jesus and Martha, where Jesus is drawing Martha bit by bit to come to this moment of faith, to come to a moment where they, she sees Jesus and her faith personalizes in him as Messiah and personalizes in him as the son of God. And she walks away with a personal faith that is, according to the standard of John, a saving faith. That's Martha's encounter. Mary's encounter is very different. Mary's encounter is a group encounter. Mary's encounter is not marked by words. It's marked by weeping. And so the main theme of what happens throughout this text is not the dialogue between Jesus and the people. In fact, that almost is non-existent. There's a little bit of chatter around. But the main hallmark of the interactions between Jesus and Mary and Jesus in the crowd is weeping. And so I think it's very intentional that he's trying to show this contrast. And that's going to uh, it's going to lead to a, a statement that he makes. that's a little bit hard to understand where it talks about he was deeply moved. We'll get there in a second. But but that doesn't mean he was sad. That means he was angry. And so ultimately, whatever happens in this encounter between Mary and Jesus and this crowd of people in Jesus provokes Jesus to anger. And so we're meant to see a big contrast between Martha, who is dialoguing with Jesus, coming to personal faith and Mary in this crowd and whatever is happening. And they're weeping that ultimately ends in provoking Jesus, frustrating Jesus by where things are. So let's walk through it. It says when she had said this or when Martha had said this, she goes back to Mary and her hope, I think, is that I want to give Mary a private encounter with Jesus, too, because once Jesus gets into town, you know, there's a lot of clamor, a lot of commotions. There's always a crowd around. And so her hope, I think, is to take her sister and carve out this little private moment with Jesus that she got. And she wants to bring Mary to Jesus. She wants Mary to encounter Jesus the way she encountered Jesus. She wants Mary to experience the same comfort and the same hope and the same faith that she's experienced in Jesus. But when Mary jumps up and runs out, and it it seems that these are more Mary's friends than than Martha's, just from the way it kind of reads out. But either way, when Mary jumps up and leaves, the crowd goes with her. Now, that's not a negative thing. Like these people are here to mourn with Mary, to mourn with Martha. These people are here to 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 cry with her. And we talked about this a little last week. Mourning was a a, a responsibility of the town. So when somebody in a town passed away, the whole town mourning with them was part of their responsibility. And a family, especially a prominent one like these, would oftentimes hire professional mourners. And then they would also hire flute players. You would have to have at least one or several flute players. And so there would be music. There would be mourning. There would be friends. There would be family. 
and, and it would be quite a scene and quite a commotion. And it was honoring each other. It was a, it was a responsibility to honor each other uh, in this last moment, uh, this, this experience of grief in a family. And so that is what is coming towards Jesus is this loud, wailing, commotion, flute playing scene that's, that's kind of coming out of the village to where Jesus is. And when Mary gets to Jesus, she gets there first. And Mary's response to running into Jesus is much more emotional than Martha's. When Mary gets to Jesus, she falls down at his feet. And that's not worship. That's like overcome with grief, outward expression of emotion, just falls down before Jesus and says the same thing Martha said. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, that is a statement of grief and a statement of faith. It's the same thing Martha just did. But it stopped there. And then look at the text. Jesus saw Mary weeping, loud, wailing, moaning, weeping. And then he saw the crowds weeping, loud, moaning, wailing, weeping. He saw Mary and he saw the crowds. And then look what it says. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, English translators have softened this word up tremendously from its original meaning. And so the way it reads is like Jesus is very moved by this outflow of emotion that that Jesus is, I don't know, somehow grieving with them or Jesus is hurting with them. It kind of gives that notion like he's moved by what he's seeing. But unfortunately, that is not the proper translation of the word or it's not the proper intent of the word. This word means outraged. This word means indignant. This word means highly frustrated. And so Jesus is seeing Mary and Jesus is seeing the crowd and something within him boils up in frustration and and, and, and indignation at what's going on and what he's seeing. And you're kind of thinking, wait, at 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 a funeral, you don't really expect Jesus to be getting mad at people for grieving. So what's happening? I'm going to give you my best interpretation and then you can wrestle with it from there. So here's what I think is happening uh, as I study it. So what he's looking at is Jesus is walking towards a tomb, which is the most visible, the most prominent sign of the fall. Jesus is walking to the number one effect, the number one, like way back when the fall was promised, like in the day you eat of it, you will die. Death is a result of the fall. Death is the, the number one destructive emblem that the fall is real. And Jesus is walking towards this emblem that says the fall is real. And so one of the things I think that provokes him is that he is coming face to face with the fall, face to face with human sin, face to face with human uh, sickness and suffering. And he is he is outraged at the experience of the fall that was not meant for people to experience. Now, yes, God knew the fall was going to happen. Yes, that's not getting into the. But I think he is confronting the fall and he is outraged at the fall and its effects. He's on earth to undo that. He's going to die to destroy that. And so I think that's part of it. Part of it is he's looking at he's looking at the fall, death, sickness and sin in the face. And he is outraged by that. Second piece of it that I think ties together. He's looking at human unbelief. See, they're not just grieving. Now, grieving is a very appropriate response for this moment. Grieving with tears happens all the way through the Psalms. Grieving with tears happens through the Gospels at different places. There is nothing wrong with human grief and human tears. I think Jesus is seeing something more than that. I think what Jesus is looking at is he's seeing a grief that has no hope underneath it. 
He's seen grieving that is wailing and moaning and hopeless. He has walked on the scene and nobody is recognizing that the hope giver is standing in front of them. Nobody is recognizing that the one who will ultimately defeat death is in front of them. Nobody is realizing what he has said all the way through the book of John. I have I am life. The dead will hear my voice and live. That if you know me, you know life. And life has been the theme of his life up to this point. And now Jesus is here and they're weeping as if there's no hope. And so he's staring at the fall and then he's staring at people and he's seeing unbelief and hopelessness and death and tragedy, death and, and sin and sickness in front of him. And he is boiling over it. He's troubled. He's agitated by what he sees. And then he's like, show me where the tomb is. And he knows what he's going to do. Show me where the tomb is. And they begin walking. And then it says, Jesus wept. Now, here's one of the unfortunate things about the English language and translation that is not the same word that is used of Mary's weeping. It's a, a different word in the original language. It's not the same word that's used for weeping of the crowds. So there, the word for the crowds weeping is loud, wailing, moaning, weeping. The word here is only used here in the New Testament, and it's a very quiet type of weeping. And I think it's the kind of weeping like when he goes over to Jerusalem and he looks over Jerusalem and he weeps. And says, how many times would I have gathered you together? But you would not. It's not the kind of grief that is hopeless. It's not the kind of grief that is worried and sad over what has just happened. He knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's not sad at all. He knows the end of the story. He's grieved at what he's seeing in the lives of people. That he would gather and they would not be gathered. And so it says they were... They were weeping and, and he was deeply troubled. And then there's the, the Jews make these statements around him that makes him even more upset. If you look at the next verse, and you're like, oh, see how he loved him. That's not why Jesus is weeping. Yes, he loves Lazarus. He's about to wake him up. He's not crying over that. Right. So they totally missed that. And then they're like, oh, he must be frustrated. Because if, if he had just been able to be here in time, then surely he, if he opened the eyes of blind men, surely he can also make this guy well again and he wouldn't have ever died. And so Jesus must just be so frustrated that he didn't get here in time. False. He didn't want to be there in time. The father didn't want him there in time because a greater faith was coming through the death and resurrection of Lazarus than it would have ever come from simply a disease being healed. And so... He is deeply moved again. And so we, before we move on, I just want you to, to think about this for you for a second and for me for a second. If you live this life, you will face grief. You will face being overwhelmed. You will face times where you don't feel like you can catch your breath. Is it wrong to grieve? No. Is it wrong to weep? No. The psalm says, when my heart is overwhelmed within me, lead me to the rock that is higher than myself. Right. When I'm overwhelmed and thinking, just show me Jesus, show me a rock that I can cling on to that's better. Right. And David talks about tears have been my food day and night. So, no, grief is part of the fall. What you must war against with all your might is a grief that doesn't have hope underneath it. A grief that doesn't walk through grief with Jesus, process grief with Jesus, feel the experience of the fall with Jesus, feel the experience of the fall without the hope of Jesus underneath it. That's what you have to war against as a believer. And then he moves on from there. And just as Martha and Mary's story were meant to be uh, compared and contrasted, Lazarus and Jesus's story, I think, are meant to be compared and contrasted as well. So what we see is we have Lazarus is physically dead. 
He's laid in a tomb, which is a cave with a stone over it, all of which will very much resemble Jesus's burial in just a few chapters from now. And then when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, he comes with linen strips wrapped around him and a cloth over his face. Same words that are going to be used at Jesus's death later on. But it's also meant to be contrasted. Because we know that ultimately Lazarus' resurrection is a temporary stay of execution. One day he will die for a final time physically. And one day he will be laid in a tomb for a final time physically until Jesus' voice wakes him up at the end of the age. He'll die again. And so he walks out bound hand and foot. He walks out kind of hobbling out with his hands and feet bound with linen and a cloth over his face. But later, and they have to take the stone away physically, later, when we see Jesus' resurrection... We'll see that the cloths will just simply lie there as he comes out from them and they can't bind him anymore. And the cloth that was covering his face will be folded nicely and the stone will be rolled away, not by human hands, but will be rolled away by the hands of God so that people can see him, not so that he can get out. And he won't be bound by any strips. Right. And so what, what we're seeing is this. This first resurrection of Lazarus is pointing us to a hope in this better resurrection of Jesus that ultimately points to a hope that a better resurrection will come for you and come for me who belong to Jesus. I think that's what the story is about. When we see signs in in John, we're not talking about miracles. When we see signs, we're talking about a miracle that shouts a message. What's the message of what's going on here? That the physically dead will hear the shout of the Son of God and they will come out of their tomb. That's Lazarus. John 5, 25. The spiritually dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will come out and live. And ultimately, at the end of the age, all of the dead in Christ will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will come out and they will live. Have you heard the voice of the Son of God? Have you come out of your tomb? Do you now live? That's a much different question than whether you go to church or not. That is a much different question on whether you give money to church or not. That's a much different question on how much Sunday school experience you have. That's a much different question on how many Bible studies you've been to, what positions you've held in church. Maybe you've taught classes. That's so much different a question. Have you heard the voice of Jesus calling you from death to life? Because I think that's the message behind the calling of Lazarus back to death. Physical death to physical life, calling spiritual death to spiritual life. And I think there's one more meaning to this sign, this better message of this sign. It is the guarantee of the promised resurrection that you'll experience one day. And so we have Lazarus, physically dead, raised back to life. We have Jesus who will physically die and physically be raised back to life by the glory of God the Father. And those are just down payments. It's called the first fruits of those who come alive. It's the down payment that guarantees one day you will rise again too. And that those you love will rise again too. That everyone in Jesus will rise again too. And when Paul talks about comforting people, he says, comfort people with these words. Don't grieve in hopeless ways because of these words. Right. That the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive will be caught up with him in the air and there will be with the Lord always. Comfort people with these words. That's what this is shouting to us. And so they say, unbind him, let him go. The resurrection has been completed. And what have we just seen? What have we just seen happen? What Jesus says to Martha. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
you are going to see the perfections of God on display. So when we talk about glory, what we're talking about is seeing the perfections of God. When we talk about glory, we're talking about seeing, encountering, experiencing the greatness and the worth and the perfections and the majesty of God. That's what we're talking about. And so what did he say to Martha? You're going to see the glory of God if you believe. You are about to come face to face with the majesty of Jesus. You're about to come face to face with the perfections of a God who didn't intend death. And he's going to undo death and make it life one day. You're about to come face to face with the power of God who can simply, by his words, make people live again. You're going to see the glory of God. And then one last step, because there's always a response to Jesus. There is not an encounter of Jesus in the book of John that doesn't provoke a response from people. Response one, many of the people that saw a dead man walk out of a grave believed. They believed. That's the response we desire for you. That's the response we plead with you to have. We plead with you not to be this next group. We plead with you to hear the voice of Jesus in the gospel that Jesus died for your sins and that he was buried And that by the glory of God the Father, he rose again from the dead to offer you life. He has sent his Holy Spirit into the world to convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. And so if you'll hear the voice of conviction, if you'll hear the voice that your sin will separate you from forever from a holy God. If you'll hear the voice of the Spirit showing your lostness, showing you your separation, showing you your death. And if you will listen and if you'll see him point to the glory of Jesus, the one who died and rose again. If you'll put all your faith in him, he'll save you. Right? We want you to believe. We want you to believe this word, not Chris's word, not some church council's word from years ago. The words of Jesus himself calling you to life. That's what we want for you. But some of them wouldn't have it. And so they went and they told the Pharisees. Snitches, right? (laughs) What in the world? And that's what they're meaning to do. It's the same word used in John chapter 5 where he goes and tells on Jesus. They're going to tell on Jesus with the Pharisees. And it lights them into this massive frenzy. And they get with the chief priests and they call the, the council together, which is the 70 leaders of the nation of Israel. And they basically would be the theologians. They would be the religious leaders. They'd be the political leaders. They are basically entrusted by Rome to say, you take care of the inner workings of the Jewish nation and don't let it spill out or we will come and take care of it. And so they give the Jewish nation a body of rulers, these 70 people, and it's their job to take care of the Jewish nation, religiously, politically, in all these ways. And so they gather together and they're like, what are we going to do? He does many signs. I have a hint for them. He does many signs. What should we do? Believe in him. But the narrative that they have spun about Jesus does not allow them to believe in Jesus. Jesus is to be hated. Jesus is to be rejected. Jesus is bad. Jesus is evil. And so their whole wiring does not allow the possibility that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Their whole wiring spiritually and the narrative of their soul does not allow a a room for him to be the Messiah. And so instead, he must be silenced, because if he's not, everyone's going to believe in him. And man, if that happens, we're going to lose our place. Now you see the problem. What's going to happen if Jesus becomes prominent? We won't be number one anymore. 
The Romans will ensure that we lose our status and we lose our position and we lose our influence and we lose our rule over the nation. And we won't get to be bigwigs anymore in the nation of Israel. Oh, in the nation, I'm sure they'll be hurt, too. And that's their biggest concern. If everybody follows Jesus, there'll be a political price to pay that'll cost us and the nation. And then Caiaphas, who is a high priest that year, you know, God used a donkey to speak from, right? Everybody know that? He spoke through a donkey, literally. Okay, so it's not going to be shocking when it's like Caiaphas was a high priest that year. And look at his statement. It is better for one man to die for the nation in the place of the nation. It is better for his death to take the place of their death. And he did not say that of his own accord. Nor did he know he was being the mouthpiece of God himself by saying Jesus will die for people. But he was. He prophesied. Jesus will die for the nation. Jesus will die for you. Jesus' death took the place of your death. Jesus' death sentence was your death sentence. Jesus' cross was your cross. And Caiaphas had no clue that he was preaching the gospel. But he was preaching the gospel. That Jesus would die for people. And he wouldn't just die for the nation. He would die to gather the children of God who have been scattered everywhere into one family. Children. Under one father, the adopted fatherhood of God, by which the spirit planted in us cries out, Abba, Father. He'll gather into one the children of God. He'll gather you. You're nowhere near from Jerusalem. You're nowhere near the group of people that he, the Messiah came for. But you're part of the gathered children of God who have been scattered abroad. And he'll adopt you into his family through the work of Jesus. And he will make you a son and a daughter by the work of Jesus. And for that, he must die. For that, he must die because they will not have a threat to their power. And for that, he must die because his blood is the only thing that could cleanse your sin from you and adopt you. So I guess they have a deal. And for that reason, Jesus goes underground for a period of time. And then the final Passover is being introduced here. And the final Passover will be the scene for the rest of the book. Because of what that final Passover is going to lead into with his death and suffering. And lead into and ultimately end with in his resurrection. A few practical things as we close down. First, hear Jesus' voice and believe. It's as clear as I can give it to you. Hear and believe. Feel the weight of conviction of sin that will separate you eternally from God. Believe in Jesus alone for your salvation. Second, grieve with hope. If it's today and you're walking through it, if it's on the doorstep and you're headed that way, if you have walked through tragedy and, and death and overwhelming circumstances and drowning before, then put hope underneath your experiences of grief. Put the walking right through it, hand in hand with Jesus, as part of your experience of grief. Grieve with hope. Weep with hope. Weep crying out to a rock that is higher than the floods that come up over you. Grieve with hope and then meditate on the glory of God. The glory of God is intended to be our highest joy and our highest good. Have you ever just sat and thought quietly before the Lord? About what he's done. Have you ever sat and thought quietly? Jesus just told a dead man to get up. And he got up. 
Have you ever just sat and thought within yourself and saturated your soul with truths like this? Like, you know what? There was a raging hurricane in front of Jesus's boat one time, and he just told it to be quiet. And it was quiet. Like, have you ever just sat and thought, man, there was a blind man that sees. There was a lame man that walked. Have you just sat and thought that the poor have the gospel preached to them? Have you ever just soaked your soul in the truths of who Jesus is and the truths about what Jesus has done so that it reorients your soul to God and it reorients your soul to what matters and it reinfuses your soul with a greater joy and a greater treasure than the stuff that you run after every day? I'd encourage you to meditate on the glory of God. Jesus is still speaking to the tombs of people's hearts and telling them to come alive. And Lazarus is just a physical example of that. I beg you to hear. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we bow and we're humbled. Lord, our voices haven't ever made anybody get up. Our voices have never made anybody alive. Our voices have never saved anyone. Your voice has. Your voice still does. And so, God, we humble ourselves so that Jesus might be exalted, that Jesus might be lifted up, that Jesus' voice might be heard so clearly that people would come out and believe. God, we want that. We plead for that. We pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to our time of invitation, we want to invite you to hear and believe as the Spirit convicting you as the spirit drawing you come come talk and we'll pray together or just fill out the little white sheet in your bulletin and say i need to talk to somebody about these things i have questions fill it out give it to one of the guys on the way out and we'll be we'll do our best to answer your questions for you but don't walk away thinking i'll do that some other time i'll hear that again someday and maybe then the bible says today is the day of salvation today Or maybe for you, grief has been part of your experience. And comfort and hope haven't yet come underneath it. I invite you to come and pray before the Lord to ask for that. Pray right where you are and ask for that. Whatever your experience is of it, that you would just ask God to come and place hope underneath. And to put Jesus beside it as you walk through it. But maybe... You've lived the Christian life a while and you've just gotten to a season like, does any of this really matter? Does God still work? It's been so long since I've seen him work. It's been so long since I've seen him really do something. Does all this praying and all this working, all this church, does it work? Does it matter? Is God really up to something? And you want to come and just ask for fresh hope. You just want to come fill your soul again with reminders that Jesus' voice is a powerful voice. And it's still speaking and it's still working. You can do that here. You can do that right where you are. We're going to stand now and we're going to sing and invite you to respond however it is the Lord is leading you during this time.